The content that's explicit will not come with a warning except for this. So bear in mind what I am saying. This show is explicit content. It's Wednesday, August 8th, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today I was tuning my radio dial, actual thing I do, but for the purposes of this anecdote, thing I didn't do, but let's pretend I did. And who did I happen upon? But the Paul Harvey of politically inflected constitutional punditry, the American Center for Law and Justice's chief counsel and Donald Trump employee Jay Sekulow hosting, as he does each day, his radio show for the aforementioned American Center for Law and Justice. The ACLJ is a Pat Robertson founded Christian rights organization whose very initials were chosen as a play on the ACLU. Think of it as the crisis pregnancy center version of a civil liberties organization. So who was Seculo's guest today? It's a big get. He landed his co-counsel, Rudy Giuliani. And talk turned to if their client, the president, would testify. An interviewer and interviewee both agreed. Well, you know, it's not just about Trump. This is much bigger. This is about the very office of the presidency. As I say on these broadcasts, and let me be clear here, you know, when we're talking about representing the president, that I do that in my capacity as the president's private lawyer, not as the American Center for Law and Justice, and, and, and everybody knows that. Having said that, the reason we're coming to you on the broadcast today is we could ignore the educational moment that this presents and the fact that the constitutional issues here are so significant that I wanted to be clear that we will be able to address our audience because part of the ACLJ's mission is, of course, educating on the Constitution. It's a learning moment. The ACLJ, it's educating us about the Constitution. In fact, on this question, would Trump testify? Giuliani went so far as to assert. If he weren't the president, you and I know this would be an easy decision. He just wouldn't testify. You know, that would be weird if he weren't president, if he would testify. And having to answer questions like, why'd you fire James Comey? And why are you pressuring your attorney general to drop the investigation? Would it really make sense if he weren't president? He would answer, well, as a real estate developer and the guy behind Trump stakes, I always wanted to fire the FBI director. I was kind of surprised the guy listened to me. Eventually, both Seculo and Giuliani, inquisitor and source, interviewer and guest, journalist and public intellectual, eventually they both agreed that their client had been very, very cooperative. And Seculo sought to make that moment last. Uh, Mayor, can you stay with us for another segment? Giuliani? making himself available for a friendly interview. I'm going to guess the schedule's open. Yeah, sure. I'd love to, Jeff. Okay, great. And more fun was had and knowledge was dispensed. I will spare you the rest of it, but you will see a version of all the conclusions they came to coming up on a Fox News segment in the near future. Fox News, or as I think of it, the stage reading version of the Jay Sekulow Show. On this show today, I offer an Ohio 12-step program though I am stuck on admitting we are powerless over political coverage and that our lives have become unmanageable. But first, a look, a fascinating and informed look at the decisions made during the last financial crisis, what we can learn from them. Columbia University historian Adam Tooze is here to discuss Crashed. We are 10 years from the financial crisis of 2008. Now, what is the exact start date? There are some celebrated start dates. I'll throw a couple out there. 
It was 10 years and about five months ago that Bear Stearns was bailed out by the U.S. government. Now in about three weeks, we'll have the 10-year anniversary of Ben Bernanke going before Congress saying, if you don't pass this funding measure, we might not have an economy on Monday. Writing about this, and in fact, going beyond this, because he's talking about a decade, not just a year, is Adam Tooze. He is the author of Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World. He's a professor of history at Columbia University. Professor Tooze, thank you for joining me. No, thank you for having me on the show. First, before we delve into your understanding of what the financial crisis was and meant, what do you think the general understanding is, not in the lay public, but in people, among people who either work in finance or tell themselves they understand what happened? What what do they tell themselves? There's a story that runs through the real estate side, that this is one of those sort of waves of enthusiasm and Mm -hmm. and overborrowing that American society goes through. The darker side of that is that people are chasing the American dream, which is slipping further and further away from them. That's one version. Then there's a kind of bank-centered story that this is really a narrative of very greedy bankers, bad men in powerful financial institutions, the kind of story that was produced by the Congressional Committees of Inquiry about the mis-selling of highly risky assets. Then there's another version, I think, which is the sort of a nuclear reactor um, runaway technology story that people derived, built a variety of derivative products which they never really fully understood and then right. we were blindsided by the by the fallout from those. So, you know, if you look at the diagrams of how the structured finance work, they often remind me of nuclear reactor kind of diagrams. That kind of story of modernism gone wrong. Right. And we've had people on the show who talk about systems that are so interconnected when they fail, they fail spectacularly. But in all of those, and I think you're a little different, is those collateralized debt obligation, those terrible mortgages, they're the bad guy. And maybe how those bits of poison work their way through the system, that's what we need to focus on. And from everything I gleaned from you, they were maybe the spark, but you point more to the banks as a fundamental, how they fundamentally been set up and allowed to, you know, wreak this kind of damage on the world system. Yes, and not just American banks. This is very important to emphasize. This is an absolutely a global thing. If one you know, had to name a, another anniversary date, it would have been last year in August when Paribas, the largest French bank, declared that three of its funds uh, would, would have to be shut down. Right. And um, this was after Europe was saying this is an American yeah, crisis. Precisely. This is your yeah, fault. All yeah. the way down 10 years later, the European Commission is still spinning that narrative. The first big bank to actually fail was Northern Rock, uh, a British mortgage lender. And that's highly significant. It's telling because it had no exposure to American subprime. Uh, It wasn't a particularly sophisticated derivatives player. What it had in common with all of the big crisis banks is a new model of banking that was basically wholesale market funded. So these weren't banks taking deposits. They were taking short-term funds from global markets. So this leads me to think that if you were to endorse a solution that's out there, Tell me how much you adhere to the idea of we shouldn't have too big to fail. I think that is one of the big questions why that was not systematically pushed in the wake of the crisis. The kind of deep conservatism of the crisis response can be measured by the fact that none of the big banks were broken up. What would an ideal banking sector in the Western world look like through uh, the lens of Adam Tooze? 
Well, I mean, I think these various proposals to separate utility banking from the profit-driven investment banking side, it's really quite a classic formula that goes back to the 1930s, have a lot of merit. The other thing I think we need to do is to build a much, much more incentivized, frankly, well-paid regulatory sector. Right? Regulators, there should be an arms race, effectively, between the publicly backed regulators mm-hmm. and the banks that they, they're trying to regulate. Because obviously, on both sides, there is intelligence at work, there are huge incentives to uh, get around any regulation you put in place. And unless the public side is willing to amp up our commitment to aggressively regulating, being a little less predictable, giving them a moving target uh, to work around, much more in the way, for instance, in which uh, monetary policy is conducted at a moment of crisis, where you really have to be light on your feet and willing to hurt speculators if that's the message that you need to send. That kind of more proactive approach is, I think, essential in the banking sector. Because if you give them any set of rules, they will find ways to game them and to uh, move outside that. Yeah, it's their job. They're highly incentivized to do so. People go to law school and want to change the world and become environmental lawyers. I don't know how many people want to change the world and become SEC lawyers, but they probably have a much bigger impact on changing the world. The, the, the law schools are absolutely pivotal to this. Uh, and the problem, of course, is that the law schools have been in, become part of the problem. The law and economics movement, we see this in regulation as well, an interface between a sort of, to put it crudely, a Chicago school economics and a legal profession which understands itself essentially as trying to optimize the working of markets has been a very bad combination for the United States in the last 20 to 30 years, all the way down to the very most recent antitrust suits, where you can see the lawyers and the economists really eviscerating uh, the the process of regulation. Well, let's talk about Trump because the book, your talks, talk about how people within the Overton window of respectability, people within the realm of the normal, be they, and I don't only mean Democrats in the United States, but, you know, Obama or probably someone like Jed Bush or certainly their advisors, were all getting it wrong or at least all not doing enough. Now you have... Donald Trump, who isn't even on their planet in terms of understanding the problem, but also his conception of what will help the problem. What do we do now? I mean, it's a really... Uh, astonishing, I think, about face that you see at the top tier of Wall Street in the fall of 2016, because as you're saying, really to a man and woman, they'd lined up on the other side. Some some of them that had involved abandoning longstanding commitments to the Republican Party to essentially endorse Clinton. And then all of a sudden, the guy's president, and they have a fiduciary op- you know, obligation to make the best of the situation. And he's promising to cut taxes and eviscerate Dodd-Frank. Do you think that the Obama administration and the Democrats and almost only the Democrats in Congress deserve at least credit for passing TARP and bailing out Fannie Mae and, you know, saving the economy from wreckage? Well, absolutely. I don't think there's any, you know, insofar as we all have a common interest in the survival of this economic system, as unjust as it may be and as damaging as as its long term trends may be with regard to the environment and so on at that moment the the system needed saving yeah. and the only party that was willing to muster the votes to do that and it's really important to emphasize even under the bush administration were the democrats the the gop the republican party was already broken uh, then as a governing institution how much did the crash the financial crisis help china um help would be far too strong a word i mean the chinese are a victim of the crisis like any other export uh, heavy economy they suffer a huge shock to their export sector in 2008 and are forced as a result to a adopt a gigantic stimulus program, the long-run consequences of which they're still trying to get a grip on. So better improve their relative status. 
in those terms, unambiguously, uh, in the sense that they face a shock and the regime demonstrates, as it has in other moments, the capacity to respond with real vigor on a gigantic scale, using all the instruments at its control, expanding, opening the floodgates of credit. It's like no stimulus program the world has ever seen. Um, strikingly, it's not military, right? So the share of military spending in the Chinese public budget goes down during the crisis. Of course, Chinese military spending is going up, but everything's going up so fast in China that, you know, it, to hold it to hold it level, you have to expand spending. Doesn't this whole thing, at least as a microcosm, show the deficiencies of democracy? We both had smart leaders, China and the United States at the time when Obama was elected, who more or less wanted to get their countries on the right path. The Chinese leader can act unilaterally. The American is hemmed in by political opponents and the Chinese won the day because of it. Well, it depends what you mean by winning, right? That's the I think the crucial Improved issue. Their relative status in, in, the in terms of yeah. in terms of material standard of living, right now China is the living change of the type that no society has ever seen in history before. And it's that's, the engine of world growth. It's absolutely the engine of and world we growth. We used to be, and we're not. Yeah, the driver of commodity markets, uh, increasingly also a dominant force in tech, at least yeah. on the demand side, on the supply side, increasingly as well. This is an epic shift which the book touches on in its final stages, but is really going to dominate the next 10 to 20 years. There's no doubt about it. And the fact that that is associated with an authoritarian regime descended from a communist party really totally changes the game on us. So I think in world history, democracy was linked to capitalism and autocracy was linked to anti-capitalism, but it didn't have to be that way. And then when China boldly changed it, it upset the balance. So uh, my solution would be, well, let's have what determines who wins be who makes the smartest decisions. If those autocrats are going to act intelligently, and there's l- been a lot of scholarship about why autocrats sometimes don't act intelligently. Mm-hmm. They don't have the signal from the populace. But if they're going to act a lot more intelligently than our leaders are, they're going to win. That seems fair to me. It seems regrettable. And part of the reason is that Americans, because I don't think the vote has been really changed so much that if masses of people wanted, say, to break up the banks, that the banks wouldn't be broken up. I think that we're just failing to learn the lesson. I don't even think you have to read the whole book. I just think the general person in America doesn't even know what the word stimulus and austerity mean. They don't know if TARP worked. They, they just have learned no lessons at all. And they're not going to vote on the lessons. And then what hope do we have? Well, I think the scenario you construct implies that there is a kind of race, right? There's an Olympics of regimes in which issues are being decided as a result of a competition. If that was so, it seems to me your scenario would, you know, would have a degree of plausibility. Mm-hmm. Of course, that isn't the world that we're in, right? There is no Olympics sure, of we regimes. Could work together. There are, <laughs> but there are big issues out there which, in a sense, force us to think in those terms. Climate change is the most obvious one, I think. Right. If you take climate change seriously, one can, in a sense, benchmark regimes against how they're performing. And the turn in the United States towards climate denialism is a disaster for the entire world and a disaster for the United States also because it means that America cannot assume positions of leadership and competitive superiority in technologies which are clearly going to matter 10 to 20 years down the line. The problem used to be that America wasn't enough of a solution. Now it's a problem. In that kind of area, for all its deficits, you have to say that the European community, the European Union offers at least some sense of hope, not that their policy 
policies are devoid of contradictions or hypocrisy. The Germans have a large coal sector, which they're lamentably slow to shut down. But there are ways in which democracies evidently are part of the solution, in fact, frame the problem from the beginning, insisted on it. And of course, we enjoy the advantage of incumbency and enormous affluence. I mean, given our levels of average affluence, growth doesn't need to be the problem of the Western states. Distribution does. Yeah. As Jason Furman has been very compelling on this point. For societies as affluent as ours, it's very it's absolutely not obvious that growth should be the target for most government policies at all. Not to go to some sort of hippie style environmental commitment not ever to grow again, but simply if you measure the welfare effects on average people, the, the the democratic citizen, especially in the United States since the 1970s, it's not obvious that growth has delivered very much for many people. And so we could very easily and very constructively and fully within the frame of our existing circumstances, prioritize policies that actually the question of court that delivered, as it were, benefits for the median right. uh, rather than the average, which is massively distorted by the top 1%. The question, of course, is where does the politics, as you were saying, where does the political will, whether the political mobilization come from. And their political leadership does matter between the necessarily ignorant voter who's got many other things to worry about in their lives than reading big books about the financial crisis or even following the daily news and the political process are the media, processes of explanation, interpretation sure. and political leadership. Sure, sure, maybe the elites can hold our leaders to account, but the, we're, we're getting better and better at making that not happen. That's also. certainly also one of the lessons of the crisis that many sorry, of the... You believe, I know it's very popular to say everyone's busy i'm busy too just a basic literacy to understand stimulus and austerity i think is necessary absolutely no of course yeah yeah. adam twos professor of history at columbia university author of crashed how a decade of financial crises changed the world thank you very much thank you And now the spiel. I'm hopping mad. I'm as spitting mad as a Muskegon County weasel. I'm as hot under the collar as a Zanesville firecracker. While the references to Ohio communities north and east of Columbus, but not quite as far up as Sandusky. Well, obviously, there was a congressional race in Ohio's 12th district. And cable news was on it like a fine coating of linseed oil on downtown Mansfield. Steve Kornacki of MSNBC. One of the reasons this was uh, so closely watched tonight is what clues do we get from these results tonight for that November midterm election? So you can see the margin here. It sits, it's- the results of this election, they've swayed back and forth. They've gone up and down like a prize pony in the Richland Carousel District. Yeah, that's right. Mansfield has its own carousel district. I'm going to stop the localism, though, right here, and I'm going to go a little global. And globally, I want to tell you this. It doesn't matter. Okay, it barely matters. First of all, you should know, and Karnacki made this point, and the pundits made this point, but, you know, if you only watch for a minute or two, you might have missed it. The seat, this seat that they're going crazy over is up again in three months. They're going to vote again in three months. And in the three months between now and then, Congress will barely be in session. Right now, 
The Republicans have a large lead over the Democrats in Congress, 43 votes. And no matter who wins this election, they're going to have this huge Republican majority in the House until the next election. Again, I don't think pundits were missing this point, but they don't seem to have been emphasizing it. Right now, the 115th Congress has 236 Republicans and 193 Democrats. It has six vacancies. One of the vacancies was Pat Tyberry in this district. He resigned in January and they called a special election yesterday. That's that's what we were seeing. If you listened for the context, if, if, if you really were saying to yourself, wait, when is this seat up again? It was there. But the reason so much attention was paid to this seat is that it was a real-world test of the strength of Republicans. And in politics, we don't have that many data points. We don't have a large sample size. So the more special elections we get, the more good information we glean on where the big election in November might go. And that's fine, and that's good. And it turns out that the Republicans are in trouble. We've been finding data to support this. And this was but another data point, And it did, in fact, support this. Uh, the facts about this district was that the Republican should have the advantage in Ohio's 12th. Cook claims uh, the Republicans should have a seven point advantage in the presidential races. Trump and Romney both won the district by 11. So what this meant, and people told you going in that if it was even close, it means trouble for Republicans in November. And guess what? It was close. And therefore, there will be trouble for Republicans in in November and stop because that's all it means. Anything past that, like talking about recounts and talking about absentee ballots and getting mad at the Green Party, it doesn't matter for why we're looking at this race, which is a data point about what will happen in November. I suppose you could say if the Republican Balderson, if he holds on like he's leading, he might have a slight advantage as a Republican. But again, the reason we were supposed to pay attention for the greater meeting is just to have this small slice, this small statistical slice. And we got that slice. Now stop with the drama. Stop going on and on and on about how it's too close to call. It is too close to call, but it's just not that meaningful a story. So many people are so invested in the actual outcome. People on Twitter are bashing those 0.5% of the voters who dared to vote green. I mean, what if they switch their votes? I'll tell you what would happen if they switch their votes. Literally nothing. The margin of victory was slightly outside their votes. But even if it wasn't, it doesn't mean anything in terms of why we should or we're told we should be paying attention to this district to get a data point and the data has made its point. It's the same point in every special election we have. Literally every single one, Democrats are outperforming their natural or underlying totals in a way that makes it likely, I would say pretty likely, they're not very likely, that they will flip the House in November. And that is all it means. Stop your Green Party witch hunt. Do you really think all those people would vote Democrat anyway? A bunch are anti-vaxxers, and I bet there are quite a few Q conspiracy people in there. At least 17, am I right? Bum, bum, bum. So this was supposed to be a data point. It is a data point. And now if you're overly wrapped up in the actual results, and even if you live in Muskegon, you are missing the point. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produces The Gist. He hosts The Daniel Schrader Show 
wherein he discusses his employer, Mike Pesca. All right, hosts and show. It's a little generous. What it really is is him muttering under his breath as he listens to the final mix. Steve Lichtai is not only the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, but is the host of the Steve Lichtai Podcast, a podcast about podcast executive producers named Steve Lichtai. Steve's guest this week, Nick Qua. The gist. I really do host The Gist. And like Jay Sekulow on his show, I have my sons on my show. The difference is I have the boys on once every couple months, not every day. That's how often we get to hear Jordan Sekulow. I commend you to this master of the airwaves who in no way is benefiting from nepotism. Let's just say he's basically the Eric Trump of the radio. Umpuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening.